Hey everybody, Brian Zane here with another edition of Wrestling with Regret. Wait a minute, hang on. Where am I? This isn't this isn't YouTube. This isn't the Cinnabon. Where the hell am I? Gaming Street Irregulars? Well, I know a thing or two about gaming and certainly being irregular, but no, this is not my scene. I'm out of here. <laughs> Good afternoon, good evening, good whatever time of day it is. Welcome yet again to Gaming Street Irregulars. I'm James Zyrish, your ballistic missile defense strategist. And joining me is exterminator extraordinaire Chrissy Harding. Hello, everyone. And today we are going to do maybe a shorter one. Maybe it'll be the same length. We don't know. We barely know until we start chatting. We're talking Atari's trackball games today. Oh, yes. The Atari. The, these four arcade releases that were a big part in defining arcade culture of the early 80s. Uh, specifically, we're talking Missile Command, Centipede, Millipede, and Crystal Castles. Oh, yes. And we also can't forget the Bolarama game. That was fun. Oh, okay, well, I gotta double check when that one came out. It was ninety one. Oh, so it's a bit later in the life cycle. Jeez, by that point, Atari, Atari was split in two. Mm-hmm. But it was still one of those games where you would sit there with the trackball and you would bowl with the trackball. So you were like, soup, 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 soup. Trying just to get those. Check here. Bull. Bull o rama. That used that used to be over. That used to be down in the reunion inn. So when we used to go for dinner, I used to go play that game. Zip, 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 zip. And yes, ladies and gentlemen, you will see me hear me do that throughout this whole entire thing because that is how I remember trackball was just sitting there and just rolling the damn ball. Zip, 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 zip. My hmm. dad told me there was an art to it and I didn't listen. There is an art to it. I just didn't listen. Huh. I'm not finding an Atari Bolarama game. Really? I'm finding a Namco one. Oh, maybe that it does was indeed Namco. use a trackball. Came out in 2005. Oh, this one was not, was 91. That was when this one came out because it was a. We used to have it down at the reunion inn. Huh. Okay, well, 1991 bowling game. And my Google engine. I searched has 1991 me. bowling game, and of course, I'm getting video of actual bowling. Oh, <laughs> yeah, right here. Oh, it's Bruce. Produced by P and P Marketing. Oh, it had well, three other. It had three other games in it. It had Bolarama, Police Trainer, and Sharpshooter. Okay, yeah, that's. We'll count that as a our first tangent then. <laughs> first tangent, trying to figure out who made this game. Maybe maybe we'll discuss discuss that a little more in depth when we get to uh, other companies' trackball games. Fair enough. But hey, it's, it's, still a, it's still a fun thing to talk about. Yeah. What was your favorite one? Of the four, almost certainly had to be Centipede. 
I just love the fact that Centipede, when it came out, if you got it for the council, it came with a comic book. Oh, right. At, le- at least on the Atari. Mm-hmm. I don't think the ColecoVision version, which which was what the last ColecoVision game my dad and I purchased, came with a comic. Mm, I know ours did. I sit there and read it, and it was it was it was an interesting story. It was you played the, pretty much your little cursor was like a, this wizard who was friends with all of these uh, animals, insects, including the sen- the titular centipede, and then they all were taken over by this evil wizard. And they were trying to kill you. So you had to fight them and you had to defeat them in order to free them. Hmm. That's kind of a pacifistic version of the story, to be sure. Yeah. Remember, they kind of were marketing this to kids. So you really right. can't say, you must squish the bugs. <laughs> so, uh, so when we return from our very short break, because even the music, what music there is, is short for these games. We will uh, start diving into the history. So the first game coming out in July 1980 was Missile Command. And the funniest thing is I was pulling up the Wikipedia article for this. It identified Missile Command as a tower defense game. Now, we usually think of tower defense games these days as... These top-down experiences like Bloons and Gemcraft or or maybe Plants vs. Zombies, which is more of a side-perspective thing, but, uh, you know, Missile Command is, is... Actually, I can tell you, actually, there's one, I just found one older than Missile Command. Okay. Atari Football, using the trackball, oh. 1978, a year okay. before I was born. Shit, exactly a year before I was born. Hmm. Yeah, it got its first release in North America, and then it was released in Japan a year later. Yeah, that's usually, that's often how it would go with some of these games before Space Invaders made the big uh, explosion in Japan. Mm-hmm. But even then, I mean, if we're just talking Atari, yeah. Uh, Atari football is the oldest. The actual oldest known trackball arcade game was Sega's World Cup game, which came out in March of 1978. Gotcha. Okay. Ladies and gentlemen, am I glad Chrissy is prepared? Chrissy wasn't prepared. Chrissy just did a quick Google search and they popped him up in chronological order. Ah, uh, okay. <laughs> That's all I did. I can't take credit for this one. James is more prepared for me for, for this one than I am. Oh, that well, I only prepared for the four games that come to my mind when I think of the Atari trackball games, the ones that consistently get reissues in arcades. Oh, yeah. In, in addition to the home front, you know, I, I don't think of Atari football, not necessarily because I'm not a football fan, even though I'm not, but mm-hmm. because there's foot sports games are so perishable in, in terms of their gameplay experiences. They get supplanted. By, by superior takes on the sport in very short order. Well, so yeah, my, I can, my brain would have never went to football. Well, if you if you're, I think I think that's more or less true when you're doing like the franchise stuff, like Madden, and they have like they actually named the players. But like the other day, I was playing Nintendo Ice Hockey on my Switch, 
And it's still a perfectly fine game. It is, and I'm sitting here. I'm like, this is this is the same kind of game as it, it literally to me. I'm like, okay, I'm playing pretty much the same hockey game as all the other games, without all the bells and whistles to distract you from the fact that you're still technically playing the same blanking game. <laughs> so I I think perishable. I think we think of it perishable is when they start putting like the names of players on, on into the game, and then you go back five or six years later, and those players aren't playing anymore. They've either retired or they've been put out because of injury or scandal, and it's it kind of does that. But when they used to just have it be the generic games, yeah, oh. you could. I don't. Yeah, that's where my feeling is on it because I do play sports games. Okay, well, but that there's some tr- definitely a lot of truth to that, but yeah. at, at the same time, you know, you go back to like a Madden '95, and then you compare it to say a Madden on an Xbox 360. Yeah, it just to me, it's it's bells and whistles. You're okay, so you up your graphics. But to, a, to your typical sports game fan, well, you just take one look at the aftermarket on on sports video games for consoles and they you will get buried in a lot of oh, them. Oh yeah. They, they're everywhere and they're cheap. Oh yeah. Cuz they cuz they mass produce them. I mean, if you think about it, every year Madden puts out a new football game every year. They always put out one for almost every season. So you're going I mean at that point you're you you're you're burying the market for retro games because it's like okay well oh yeah if you can't get 95 you can get 94 or 93 or 96 they they've just mass produced them because they would sell during those years so i think when you do retro gaming and you're looking at like the value of the game the sports section of it don't i don't even bother looking at it for the value of the game because they just flooded the market Every year there was a new, you had a new NBA game, a new NHL game, a new MLS game, a new football game. You had a new baseball game because they just updated the rosters. Okay. What I've been desperately trying to say about Atari football is that people aren't going back to X's and O's. Fair enough. (sighs) Sorry. It's okay. That was, can we make that tangent too? I guess so. Okay. Tangent (laughs) too. Unfortunately, I don't have my tangent board up because we're moving, so it's kind of been taken down. And actually, it's in a box somewhere, and I don't know where it is. By the way, James is awesome. He helped me move a bunch of heavy stuff yesterday, so yay, James! Thank you. You're welcome. So let's go back to Centipede, because honestly, Uh, that actually is one of my favorite games. We barely touched Missile Command, though. Okay, wait, did Missile Command come before Centipede? Now I'm lost. Missile Command came out in 1980. Centipede came out in 81. Okay, then we'll go with Missile Command first. Sorry, I got lost. Okay, that's all right. <laughs> so the designer for Missile Command was David Thurer. I hope I'm pronouncing his name right. And he had also designed Atari's vector graphics game Tempest in that same year. And both of those games had an influence on his psyche. Well, according to... To interviews, Dave Thurer would have nightmares about cities being destroyed by nuclear blasts, and he would have similar nightmares when trying to come up with gameplay for Tempest about creatures coming up from the ground to pull him down. This was a man in bad need of therapy. 
from the sound of it. Well, you know, but that was a valid concern back then, though, too, was, I mean, it was in the middle of the Cold War. Well, absolutely. By this point, we had been over 20 years into the Cold War, and, you know, we still weren't quite cooling down yet. I don't even think Gorbachev had taken power in Russia. I don't think he did either. So Glasnost wasn't even a thing yet. Yeah, and I think also, too, I mean, you got to remember is probably, so if this is, he's probably when his most of his childhood with talks about nuclear war, you know, doing the um, the nuclear fire, you know, the nuclear bombing drills where you hit under your table, where you hit under your desk, you know, which absolutely does nothing. But, you know, it was a safety thing. I mean, he probably grew up with that hearing the probably hearing the alarms or the sirens for when they did drills and the talk of bomb shelters and, you know, yeah, the man definitely needs therapy, but he's also a product probably of his childhood and his time. I mean, could you imagine? I mean, you go through that, it's going to definitely hit your psyche at some point. I, I, I get the point, definitely. I mean, th- that kind of dream is going to, you know, you got the duck and cover mm-hmm. videos and the and all the other educational videos that, you know, we chuckle at now because they're of their hokey production, but it was a very serious threat back then. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, having nightmares about creatures pulling you down into the ground, the same year you're having these nightmares about nuclear devastation, the poor guy needed a break. Yeah, he did. And I'm the part of me kind of wonders if maybe Missile Command was like the therapeutic part of that, where he created a game where you pretty much are blowing up the stuff, you know, you're trying to blow up these creatures who are trying to destroy your cities. What's going on in Missile Command is you're going to be uh, trying to uh, move across here along with the trackball. Zip, 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 as you would say. Zip, zip, zip. That's my new favorite sound effect. And you're firing counter missiles to deal with the missiles attacking the cities, uh, which were originally intended to represent cities in California. Eureka, San Francisco, San Luis Obispo, Santa Barbara, Los Angeles, and San Diego. Yeah, they better not blow up San Diego. That's where San Diego Comic-Con is. <laughs> you can have Eureka. I'll give you Eureka. <laughs> and over time, uh, you know, the, the game would get faster and harder, and you'd have these airplanes and apparently UFOs. Trying try to drop the missiles, and inevitably, you would wind up losing all your cities, but you'd get some bonus ones. For scoring high enough or lasting long enough and inevitably it would be the end not game over mind you but the end mutually assured destruction has begun yeah the only time that that actually was skipped is if you make a high enough score made it up on the high score list and then you just got prompted to put in your initials oh yes i never scored that high nope so it also had an interesting bug to it, too, where if you scored upon scoring um, 810,000 points, and then after that, per, I guess it's like one per million points after that, you actually started winning back cities. Okay. So, and that was a bug, and that was actually a bug in it. You could get up to 100, at least according to the note here, you can get up to 176 cities. Plus, continually accruing the bonus cities. So you, you could keep 
So if you broke that high score and kept winning on top of it, you actually would start getting, you know, kind of back this kind of back some of the cities to help you win. Interesting. Yeah, it was it was hard. I think the highest I don't even know what the highest score is. I wonder what that is. That's Let me look a, that one up. That's a good qu- Oh, wait, here we are. We've got some world records here. Ooh. In a tournament setting in 2006, UK-based gamer Tony Temple set a world record confirmed by Twin Galaxies of 1,967,830 points. Ooh. Good job, Tony. Yeah, he beat a record held for over 20 years by U.S. gamer Roy, Sh- Roy Schilt. Good job. He would subsequently increase his world record, accumulating in a score of 4,472,570 points on September of 2010. This took him two hours and 57 minutes. And it represents the first officially verified time that a player has passed the highest level at wave 256 on Missile Command under tournament settings where the game difficulty starts over at level one again. Wow. Damn. Damn. I can't, I got nothing more to say than damn. Uh, Yeah. I I can't imagine sitting at a single game of that nature for more than three hours. I mean, you and I have done it with final fantasies and, and their ilk before, but a a twitchy experience like, like missile command, I, I, my brain would fry. Yeah, I mean, at least, you know, with those games there, like, with Final Fantasy and, and every and all those other games, you can actually, like, pause the game, get up, go get yourself a drink, go take a, go to the bathroom. I don't, like, with Missile Command, like, once you get in the groove of playing a game like that, like, pausing the game just to take a break, like, you have to be really on your game to be able to come back and pick up right when you left off, because you're still in the middle of firing, you know, when you're, when you're playing that game, like you can't just go, Oh, got to go to the bathroom, pause where like with the other games, you could be in the middle of a boss battle, move your character away from the boss, hit pause, go to the bathroom, come back. And you, you have that little bit of time to readjust yourself back, you know, to get acclimated again to the game setting. So yeah, like to every, like, damn, that man's got my respect. Yeah. Now, a couple of last notes about Missile Command before we uh, hit up Centipede and Millipede. Mm-hmm. There's a... Uh, well, you were just talking about the Centipede comic in the instruction manual. Turns mm-hmm. out there's a bit of lore in the instruction manual for Missile Command that does not show up at, in the arcade version. Ooh. Where they're describing a war between the planets Zardon, that, that's you, the defending player, and Krytal. So that would explain where some of those UFOs are coming from. Yeah, that would make sense. And also the end screen of um, Missile Command actually shows up in a couple of movies. That, that's right. Tell me, tell us which ones. So Terminator 2 Judgment Day, when John Connor plays the game in the arcade, you can actually, it kind of, it's kind of interesting because it's echoing the theme of the game in the movie because we all know what, you know, we all know the, the basis of terminator is right. and the other one is 1982's fast time at ridgemont high mm-hmm. where they actually use the t- end screen to illustrate the film's ending it also showed up in barney miller 
which featured the det a detective who was hooked on the game Missile Command. And it was in a 2008 episode of the show Chuck, um, where the satellite access code was hidden in the kill screen of, of Missile Command by its programmer, Mr. Morimoto. Okay. And when we were watching that arcade documentary from Monkey Business, we uh, came across the fact that uh, General Computer Corp., the people who would eventually create Ms. Pac-Man, got mm -hmm. their start developing a program modification for the Missile Command arcade board to make it more difficult, more varied, and you know, just enhance the game experience. Yeah, and allow and allow arcades to be able to continue to make money off of these games. Because I mean, once you beat the, you know, it was kind of like the worry was was once you beat the game, would you go back? You know, are you really going to go back and replay the game once you got to the end of the game? So they wanted to kind of make it more profitable. Plus, if you got really good at the game, you could probably beat the game on one quarter. Well, they ain't making a whole lot of money on that. No, and that actually leads us quite efficiently into Centipede yes. the following year. Oh, Centipede. And we'll, and we'll explain uh, how, how that leads in in a bit, but first got to get into the development because the story of how we got Centipede is actually kind of kind of neat. Donna Bailey started by looking at games like Space Invaders and Galaxian and decided she wanted a game with more interesting bugs mm -hmm. and with different behaviors. And so she eventually came up with a, with a few different ones, including the centipede itself, which would slowly crawl down the screen, and she made it so that it would it would break into segments and all that. But mm -hmm. she she realized I don't really have a means of getting this thing down quick enough. So she wound up creating the mushroom forest that we know and, and uh, begrudgingly love to this day. And one of her co-workers came along and said, hey, that's a pretty neat maze you created. And she realized she'd accidentally created a hybrid of shoot 'em up and maze game with this title. Mm -hmm. So, you know, with programming help from Ed Log, who would, was known for the vector game Asteroids at that point, they came out with Centipede in 1981. And if games like Asteroids and Missile Command were a hit, Centipede was a phenomenon for Atari. It broke their sales records. I mean, it became it. it this one definitely falls into the fixed shooter genre because your your shooter's fixed to the bottom of the screen, and it was definitely a game that required some strategy to it because you could shoot the mushrooms. The mushrooms took four shots to destroy. Right. So you had to kind of figure, like, okay. Do I destroy the mushroom or do I go to a spot where I can try to hit the centipede through a very narrow window? Like you had to really kind of figure, figure your way through it. Um, and then they add in all the other bugs. Lots of bugs. That just annoy the heck out of you. Like the fleas and the spiders. Oh my God. And the scorpions. Oh, I hated yeah. the scorpions. Each of these is a pain in the rear in their own respective ways. You're going to encounter the spiders first, who are designed to keep players from just sta staying in one spot and just shooting, 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 shooting. Mm -hmm. You know, you you know, Donna wanted you to go zip, zip, zip on the trackball in this game. Zip, 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 zip. The spider's erratic movement. 
would not only harass the player, but also come into play in how it would score. If you were the fur- as far away from the spider as you could get, it would only be worth 300 points. Bridge the distance about uh, to maybe about an inch, and it'd be worth 600 points. Mm-hmm. Get up super close, and it'd be worth 900 points. So spider hunting became a quick way to really boost your score. Yeah. Now, the fleet would start showing up the very next stage. And it could be a, a nuisance, or it could be helpful, depending on your strategy. Because it would just descend in a straight line down and add more mushrooms. I, I tended to just ignore the and, and avoid the flea, because the flea required two shots to stop. And on the first shot, it would just get faster. So I, I'm thinking to myself... Uh, this thing ain't worth bothering with. I'd just go back to hunting spiders. And honestly, they weren't even worth, they were only worth, what, 200 points? I think so, yeah. Yeah, you were better off trying to take out the spider and the scorpion, because the scorpion was worth a thousand points. Oh, yes. And tell us a little more about the scorpion, since I've been rattling on long enough. Oh my god, scorpions. I hated the scorpions. So yeah, they're worth they're worth a thousand points. They do take a couple of hits to kill. But the thing is, is that as your scorpion went across the stream, any mushroom that it touched turned into a poison mushroom. What does that mean? So if your centipede hits the poison mushroom, instead of doing its little zigzag back and forth across the stream, it came straight down at you. If you were a good shot... You could take out all of the centipede at that time. If you were a sucky shot, your game would have been over because it would have came right at you. And as Mm -hmm. soon as you get hit by any of the insects in this game, you're dead. And while we're talking about uh, you, as in in you, that which dies when you touch an insect... Mm-hmm. You know, we've you know, you mentioned that the the, the player character is supposed to be a wizard, and you know the, the arc. You know, I've seen art depicting him as a sprightly little elf, and of course, there was the '90s remake, which depicts him as a guy in a little uh, mechanized turret. Yeah, because at but, that point they really went with the calling, because your your shooting gun was called the bug blaster. Yeah, but in the original yeah. arcade game itself, your player avatar is the most abstract looking thing i've ever seen yeah it was it's kind of i'm not even sure what they were trying to make it as but like for for making something with a low profile for to you know so that you're not a a huge wide target it does the job from a gameplay perspective so we can let it slide yeah well and also i mean it's it's, it's early 80s pixel art, and they only had so much room. I mean, you have a choice to make. Do you make a really beautiful pixelated graphic of your protagonist? Or do you just make an, or you just put all of that memory space into making a game that just progressively gets harder? Because as the centipede gets closer and closer to the bottom of the screen, it tends to get faster and faster and faster. And you also have to deal with other centipede heads randomly showing up at the bottom of the screen, too. Mm-hmm. You, you, I, you forget about those sometimes. I think I forgot to mention those in the write-up when I did Probably. that for the blog. Probably, because, I mean, they, had, they, had, they were infrequent when they did show up. Annoying as hell, but yeah. infrequent. So, now, yeah. centipede, 
was a big hit with women, which shouldn't come as a surprise because it was created and co-developed by a woman. Mm -hmm. And the advertising featured a mother and daughter playing the game. Now, this, this was really before marketing segmented off into, we're going to just target boys and that's it for video games. You know, this is pre-Crash. This is, yeah, this is pre, this is pre the blue aisle and the pink aisle. When okay. it came to, when it came to arcade games. When it, yeah, specifically when it came to arcade games, because, you know, those aisles existed at that oh, point. Yeah. But we weren't quite, but with video games weren't quite there. Well, I think a lot of it was they were still trying to figure out their niche. I mean, think, look at, look at the old Lego advertisements where you would have, where it wasn't the Lego friends or the, the Lego Disney. I mean, you would have advertisement of girls sitting there and playing with plain Legos and making all types of stuff, not just the little house to put their dolls in, but you know, spaceships and, and planes and automobiles and everything. So I, I don't know when Lego decided to jump into the blue aisle, pink aisle, but they never should have. But I think in the eighties, a lot of the advertisement when it came to kind of the more unisex stuff with like video games, board games, um, Legos, they really diverse their marketing with that because yeah you would see advertisements of a mother and daughter at a video game console playing centipede or a kid or a little girl playing with legos or a brother and sister playing monopoly so unfortunately that kind of egalitarianism did not translate to atari's own development headquarters Apparently, Donna's success rubbed some of her co male colleagues the wrong of course, way. She was a woman. She was a woman she, who succeeded, right? But and she became very cognizant of it, mm -hmm. so she wouldn't stick around at Atari for terribly much longer, which was a terrible shame because I would have loved to have known what else she would have done in the arcade space to that company. Yeah, she made she made arcade she made Atari a lot of money with Centipede. And I think because a lot, of, because I, and I probably in a lot of it too, one, she was a woman. So she brought a different perspective to gaming. Nothing against most male programmers back then, but they didn't put a whole lot of thought into storytelling. For arcade games, yeah. But I think that gets back to what you would say about the, the design space oh, yeah. where you where are you going to devote a ton of space to a story or to the gameplay yeah. experience? And I think with, uh, with the video arcade games, I think when they started realizing, hey, we don't have to put a ton of story into the game itself. We can put a ton of stories in. We can put the story into the paper, the stuff that goes with the game, explaining how the game is played. Hence, beginning of, the fun user manuals that told you all the little itty bitty things about the game. They couldn't make it into the game itself. Namely, and my favorite one is this, the fact that Birdo from Super Mario Brothers 2 was a boy pretending to be a girl. Wow. <laughs> yeah, I forgot yeah. about that. Nowhere in the game does it state that. But if you read the owner reader's manual where they in it in the part where they did the little blurb on Birdo, you realize that Birdo wanted to be a girl which made it even more interesting when they hooked 
Birdo up with Yoshi in subsequent Mario sporting games. I, I'm under the impression that Birdo is a species and not an individual, so maybe it's a different Birdo? Probably is. But it was just one of those things where I remember when it first came out and they were like doing the couple, like the heterosexual couple pairing in some of the games like Mario with Peach, Luigi with, you know, with Daisy. Um, and then it was like Yoshi with Birdo. And I'm like, my impression of Birdo was I'm like, wait. Oh, oh OK, because <laughs> the most famous Birdo is the one from Super Mario Brothers 2. Now, is it po- right. now it's very possible it's a species and just like Yoshi's are a species in the game series. But it was just one of those moments of like, huh? Um, but see, that was a bit of information that you would never have known playing the game. And with I think with Donna. By putting the comic, because by coming up with the idea of putting a comic in with the games in part of that user manual packet was a very unique way of getting you to know the backstory to the game without taking up a whole lot of game space. I'm, you know, I don't know exactly how much feedback she would have had on on the manual for for the game, but that could we could look at that another time. Yep. Because there's the one big thing about Centipede that we alluded to when we started talking about the game is people eventually started to figure out a workaround to the game's difficulty. There, the, the strategy of creating a, a column or two of mushrooms to funnel the Centipede down so that it would be a sitting duck for your shots. Oh, yes. And like you, like you said with... Uh, with why arcade owners would want to upgrade their games to keep them fresh and you know so people so they could make more money off of them people when people got good at centipede they got really good at centipede and they would hog the machine for a long long time drastically reducing its profits to the point where arcade operators actively complained to atari ab- about it mm-hmm so, so they set Ed Log, since Donna Bailey had already left at the time, yep. to creating the sequel Millipede to address these complaints. <laughs> um, and just a quick note before we jump into Millipede. Centipede, I think, is probably one of the few games that had the most clones of it that I can see. And just to give you an idea of the list of clones, Bug Attack, Arachnoid, Aqua Attack, Bug Offs, Caterpillar Exterminator, Caterpillar Attack, with a K, Mega Legs, Myrapede, Video Vermin, Anthropod, Bug Blaster, Bug Blaster, Cenobug, Maggot Mania, Megapede, Mouse Stampede, which is the only one that did not go with the bug theme, uh, Mushroom Alley, Spectipede, Wiggle Worm, Dissectipede, Aperion, Champ Centipedium, and Bugs, with the last part of it, the GS capitalized. And a partridge in a pear tree. Pretty much. And that's just home councils. I'm not even going into the arcade ones. Hmm. Yeah, I, I imagine there's almost a similar list for Pac-Man. Oh, I'm pretty sure there is. But with that, with the call, believe I love the fact that Millipede as you said, was considered the sequel to Centipede. 
And it added more freaking bugs to it. Oh, it added a bunch. Released in November of 1982, Millipede, it's like comparing Centipede to Millipede looks like the start of an arms race and the end of an arms race. Because the bugs have multiplied. We've got a ton of them. The Millipede itself is basically gameplay-wise the Centipede in terms of behavior. Just harder to hit. And the spiders are back. They behave the same way. But their score has increased a little bit. If you're flush against it, you can get 1,200 points. But other than that, they kind of got rid of everybody else. They got rid of the fleas and they got rid of the scorpions. The sc- right. Their, their function was still there, but they were under the auspices of new bugs. Mm-hmm. You know, you had the earwigs doing the scorpions job and the bees. Bees. My God. Replace the fleas. Oh, yeah. But you also had dragonflies and mosquitoes. And you had inchworms and ladybugs. Right. But, you know, I was going to get to those in a second. Oh, okay. Sorry. I got ahead of you. Because I mentioned the dragonflies and mosquitoes first because they function similarly to the bees slash fleas, but except at different angles. The dragonflies would zigzag down while the mosquitoes would descend diagonally, bouncing off the edges of the screen. Oh, Lord. So these so these guys would create different patterns of mushrooms to further trip up the centipede and send it along in different directions. Curse you, Atari! <laughs> uh, and then you had, like I said before, you had the inchworms and you had the ladybugs. Now, these were truly new mechanics. Yeah, this was something brand new. Yeah, the inchworms were probably the most helpful bug. They wouldn't even really come that close to you. They just move along horizontally. And if you shot it, all the enemies would be slowed down for a short while. I mean, the inchworm was almost a mercy bug. That was kind of like the only bone that this game threw you. And then there's the ladybugs, which were tremendously annoying. They would crawl around the player area. And, oh, we should mention that the player area is distinctly marked a different shade, a colored shade from the rest of the play field. So that you know the limits of where you can roam. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which was nice. So you knew like how far forward and back you could go. And it gave you probably, I think that helped a little bit with strategizing how you were going to play this game. Yeah, and if the ladybug hit a mushroom, it would turn it into an indestructible flower. So you couldn't clear out your space, so you're not getting hung up on a on a mushroom, or in this case, flower, trying to get away from a spider or the, or the millipede or any other bug that's coming into your personal space. Yeah, the only thing with this is, is um, when you hit it, though, all of the mushrooms on the screen like, went down a row. Yeah. And conversely, when you hit the mosquito, it would everything would scroll up a row. Yeah, that's true too. Now, with all these, oh, you also had one other wep- one other uh, mercy at your disposal that we forgot about the DDT bombs. But currently, we are not allowed to use DDT in the United States. It is poisonous. Oh, naturally. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> so instead, I I just think of it as uh, as shooting it, and then Jake Roberts deals with the bugs. There you go. <laughs> Throw a cat at it. Yes. They'll kill them all. 
So yeah, the DDT bomb would uh, give off give off a poisonous cloud, and any bug that entered it would not only perish, but be worth double points. And also, all the mushrooms within it would disappear too. Yeah. The points are scored when you shoot the bomb itself, and the enemies destroying the blaster was actually yeah three times the normal points. It's what was interesting was when the mushrooms scrolled down. So when you when the mushrooms at the bottom of your screen kind of went off the screen because it scrolled down, mm-hmm. that mushroom turned into a bomb. Okay. So once again, there's kind of that little strategy there of okay, I got mushrooms on the bottom. Okay, here comes one of those ladybugs. If I do it, oh, I get three bombs. Try to hit the ladybug. Okay, gotcha. Now there, there's. Two other things to consider gameplay-wise. There would be enemy waves of nothing but bees, or nothing but dragonflies, or nothing but mosquitoes. And they would be worth increasing points based on how many you could shoot down. Mm -hmm. Up to a thousand each. Yeah. And this would heavily repopulate the mushroom forest with more mushrooms. And even at the end of some rounds, mushrooms would spontaneously spawn... I mean, it seems like they were doing everything in their power to prevent the old centipede strategies from working in this game. Yeah. And the the other cool thing with this game was, too, this game, for as hard as it was with all those extra bugs, it, it was a little bit, it did have a couple of forgiving mechanics to kind of hook you in. One of those is how many points were needed for an extra life. It's only 15,000. That's not bad. No, that's not bad. Centipede was at 12,000. Every 12,000 points, you got an extra life. Um, the other cool thing with this is, is that the players could determine the level of difficulty they wanted to play at. So if you wanted to play at a more advanced level, you could. Yep, we saw this first with Tempest, actually. Mm-hmm. And uh, they would revisit this mechanic in another bug-themed game which was a twin-stick shooter we, we talked about way back when, Black Widow. Oh, yeah, that's right. So the cool thing also about Millipede is it actually was the fourth highest-grossing arcade game in 1983. Uh, it was just below Mrs. Pac-Man, Pole Position, and my freaking favorite game to watch and rage quit, Dragon's Lair. Naturally. Yeah, I'm still pissed at you, Dragon's Lair. It's not over. Another piece of interesting history for Millipede is when Nintendo was pitching having Atari distribute the Famicom in the U.S., mm-hmm. they had uh, the folks at HAL Laboratories whip up a port of Millipede so that they could use it and a couple of other games, uh, namely Joust, Defender 2, Stargate, and purputedly Kangaroo to show <laughs> off to Atari as proof of concept of how their system could handle games that would have been familiar to Atari executives. You know, stuff they themselves had released on their own consoles. Can you imagine how different history would have been if Atari wasn't already working on the 7800 at that very time, and also seriously considering exiting the console marketplace? Mm-hmm. Also interesting enough, on the default high score table... There are two initials on it. One is ED, which says, which uh, ED, that's Ed Log, uh, designing a program. The other one is FXL, which is Franz 
Lansinger, who helped a bit with the design and testing. So those are the so when you see those on the default high scoreboards, that's who those people are on the high scoreboard. But there actually is somebody who actually holds two world records for this game. And it's the same person. So Donald Hayes of New Hampshire, kind of not too far from us, um, he actually scored a world record um, on December 26th of, tw of, 20, of 2004 for 10,627,331 points in the game. In tournament setting, in the tournament setting, he currently has the high score of 495,126 points. So the two world records, one in a casual setting and one in a tournament setting, are held by the same person. Hmm. Now, you mentioned Franz Lanzinger. Mm -hmm. You know what else he, he worked on? What? Crystal Castles, our next game. Woo! Boys, I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall of the development of this game because so much of the video game overall gestalt of what was going on in the industry at that time is wrapped up into a neat little package with this title. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, it's a trackball game, which, you know, we've been discussing this whole episode, but it's a <laughs> item collection game. Like Pac-Man, you know, so there's a lot of territory control in this game. But there's jumping in it across multiple t tiers of platforms. So, you know, you get a little bit of Donkey Kong in there. Mm -hmm. And it's all done from an isometric perspective, which was first being made popular by Sega with Saxon. It's like, how many different games can they be referencing and or drawing from at one go? Don't give them that challenge. Oh, don't do it. <laughs> I, I I actually want them to. This is gonna this this will be a hold my beer moment for Atari. What's left of Atari? True. Now that first stage of uh, Crystal Castles, France snuck his initials in again. They're right there in that first stage. Yep. I never even noticed that until just now. Yep, F, XL, and it's you could do it across the top, or going going horizontally, or going vertically. Now we should probably tell the listeners at home what's going on in this game, since we've been in the weeds a little bit as far as what it drew from. Mm-hmm. You're playing as Bentley Bear. Yep. Basically an adorable little teddy bear. Probably would have been a mascot for Atari if they had stuck, if they hadn't ha experienced so much disaster going uh, at, in the years to follow this game. Curse you, Jack Tremaine. Curse you. But your your goal is to clear the 37 trimetric projected castles of, of the gems that are contained within it mm -hmm. before the, the servants of, uh, what's her name? Berthilda the Witch, I believe. Yep. Can get them... First, you know, if you actually succeed in getting getting the last gem, you get a bonus point score. If the enemies get the, get the other gems, no bonus score. And the enemies are quite varied. Indeed. And also, this was actually one of the first arcade games that actually had a definitive ending. It did yeah. not go on a loop. So when you beat the game, 
you beat the game. Which is a nice quick way of of keeping players moving. Mm-hmm. And and not that beating this game was exactly a simple matter. Oh no. This game yeah. You know, moving a protagonist in a three-dimensional space with a trackball is difficult. Think playing Marble Madness with your mouse. Mm. Yeah. If, if not, Of all the four games from Atari's classical period that we're discussing today, I just realized we probably should have added Marble Madness to this discussion since that's technically Atari, but it's the division of Atari that's now owned by Time Warner. <laughs> it's a long, complicated story there. I think that belongs into it belongs into its own either a its own show, or b it's the show of the show about games that games that have a complicated backstory tied up in litigation. Possibly, but you know, we'll, we'll, maybe we'll talk about Atar, Atari's post split work in another episode. That might be a good idea. Yeah. Because I'm looking at the time, and we've been talking about this longer than I expected. Woo! <laughs> but yeah, let's let's talk about the enemies in Crystal Castles, because you've got some Crystal Balls, which are the basic enemy. They're kind of uh, easy to jump over, and they're not that fast. And you've got Nasty Trees. Mm-hmm. That, that's their specific name, Nasty Trees. They, they They'll collect the gems but they take a little bit to grow first and you can stop them in their spot by jumping over them and they'll have to start growing all over again i guess they shrink to avoid you jumping over jumping Mm -hmm. and there's going to be a skeleton dancing about that won't pick up gems but will still be lethal to the touch there's also the ghost yeah uh, there's the gem eaters. They eat the yeah, gems. Yeah, the gem eaters. Those are probably the most memorable enemies in the game because their animation is so quirky. You know, and, they'll, they'll wander about and their little cyclopean eye will look back and forth. If they come across the gem, they'll pause for a moment and you'll see the gem go up their body, up to their head, and their eye will bulge out. And that's actually a gameplay component too because that's when it's vulnerable and you can actually get it off the stage yep you can kill it uh you can um the bear bentley bear can actually kill him if he catches them eating a gem so if he catches them while they're eating a gem he can actually you can actually kill the character so you kind of have to sacrifice a gem in order to get rid of these things right but it's but it's worth it because they're, they're worth some decent points they are there's also oh god there's bees again. The bee swarm! The bee yes. swarm! Oh, th- those things were the hurry-up enemy, which were becoming more and more popular by 1983. I mean, before this, you would have Evil Otto and Berserk. You'd have the Fireballs in Mario Brothers. You'd have the Pterodactyl in Joust. You know, things that would be cropping up to get you to, hey, finish this dang level already. Hmm. Then there was the, uh, the devilish mothball creature. They would follow you around as you were collecting your gem and just being annoying. Annoying! Yeah. And if there's Berthilda herself, who would appear every fourth maze. And you could eliminate her by picking up the hat, which would give Bentley invincibility. Mm -hmm. And she's worth a whopping 3,000 points. Yeah. Take her out, man. 
And also what's interesting with this game too was um, there was a custom chip that was made for this game. It's called the Leta, the Leta chip. Leta chip. And it was designed yep. by Scott Fuller. Yeah, that 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 was the the trackball uh, chip, so that mm-hmm. so that the game could zip along as quick as it did. Zip 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 zip. Yeah, this game just really suffers with any other control format. Oh, it does. Which is why I'm I'm desperate for Arcade One Up to release a new trackball countercade device so that I can play this game the way it was meant to be played. Because mouses or joysticks, they don't cut it. You heard that, guys? Speed it up there. James needs to play this game again. Now. Yeah. You deal with me. Even though I don't know where you are, but I'll find you. Uh, yeah. Crystal Castles, of all the games we discussed, has the least amount of legacy to it. You know, it would show up in anthologies, of course, and it's fondly remembered. But Bentley it has only appeared in one other game. Oh, really? The Atari Kart's game for Atari Jaguar. Oh. They're attempting creating a, a Mario Kart uh, clone. Yeah, don't do that, guys. Right. And he'd also show up for a cameo in Wreck-It Ralph. Oh, did you also, do you know that there, that actual Crystal Castle has at least two notable Easter eggs? Yeah, we discussed FXL. If you jump a hundred times or more in the southwest corner in the first oh, level. Oh, shows up. No wonder I never noticed it. Yeah, so you have to hunt. You have to jump a hundred times in the first in a hundred times or more in the southeast corner of level one one, and clearing of in clearing the maze of all the gems will make Atari appear in the maze on the next level. Okay. All right, and then on five four, if the player kills Bert Hilda and goes into the corner of the area where she was and jumps, Franz's initials pop up again ah okay he was having a good time putting his name in here oh yeah yeah he was according to this he was one of the lead designers yep him and sam lee yeah so you know back then you really didn't get you really you didn't get the credits like you like like we do now in video games where you can see who made the game or who worked on it so the designers had to find different ways of giving themselves credit so the most recent game to follow up on these four to come out that i'm aware of anyway Mm -hmm. is a new version of missile command that's available on mobile devices and the switch yes it came out i think what was it um 2016 uh, on mobile anyway it came out on the switch a couple years later yeah but what's neat about this is it actually applies atari's famous vector graphics look to Missile Command, giving it a retro look, and it really makes use of touchscreen controls very effectively. And it's just, what, six, seven bucks on Nintendo's digital marketplace? Yeah, I think it's on sale right now. Yeah, it's worth your time to check out if you haven't. I definitely recommend it. And I know my friend Linwood has gotten a lot of good play out of it, too. Oh, that's awesome. So yeah, and I, mean, I think that just about covers it. That covers the big four trackball games that you would be able to find in 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 the arcades back when we were growing up, and you probably can still run across one or two of them now. Oh yeah, they've been reissued a few times uh, by Namco, I believe. Now that Atari's no longer in the arcade space, yeah, that's true. 
so yeah, definitely, definitely, if you can track them down. I mean, and and you can. I mean, if you can't find them or or you're looking at them, you're like, ooh, that's too much money. And James, close your ears. Um, I would put this on the any play any way you can through, and you can do that from emulation. Okay, you can open yours now, James. You know, there's actually a very effective legal emulation way you can do this. Mm-hmm. There's a licensed Raspberry Pi device you can pick up at an independent retailer out there that is that is hooked into a big old arcade controller setup that you hook into your TV and it comes with a trackball. So that that's actually something I may have to look into. Yeah, it's actually um it's actually a really decent setup. You just have to be careful because the program they use, I think it's RetroArch. And RetroArch, if it doesn't read the controller right, will take you into the main menu and then you're literally stuck like in the RetroArch main menu trying to get out of it to get back to the game. Mm. Yeah, and the game is still playing in the background. So, you know, you, you can literally sit there as you're trying to get out of the main menu. Die. That leads oh, to some major man. rage quitting, but it is a good setup, and and I'm I'm looking forward to seeing what they do with it because they're because even now they're still um, fine tuning it and putting out updates for it. Okay. Yeah, if I pick up one of these, I, we'll have to check it out together. Mm-hmm. I love Mary's Although the assembling yourself part is uh, making me a little nervous. I will actually tell you, assembling a Raspberry Pi is not that hard they give you it's not the raspberry pi portion that i'm worried about it's the rest of it they give you a they give you some really good directions to it Hmm. okay and if you need help you know where i am true but i i'm not very technically inclined if you need help you know where i am and you know where bill is because bill loves playing with his raspberry pies Anyhow, we're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we have all our usual patter. Woohoo! Want to support the Irregulars? Head over to www.patreon.com backslash fc3roc. We're part of the media division of Flower City Comic Con, based in Rochester, New York. We're a nonprofit group. Everything we make off of Patreon and everything else we do goes right back into putting on our future conventions and other events, from reserving the facilities to bringing in guests. If you pledge any amount, even a slim dollar, you will receive improved access to my blog entries, where every Tuesday I go over current video game news and write retrospectives on old-school arcade games, all delivered conveniently to your inbox. There's plenty of other perks and rewards, And if you don't see what you're looking for, reach out to the crew. They'll be happy to work with you. Want to get a hold of us in particular? You can email Christy directly at k-r-i-s-s-i at fc3roc dot org and me at j-a-m-e-s at fc3roc dot org. At the moment, we're still working out most social media matters, but we are indeed on Facebook at Gaming Street Irregulars. Chrissy and I are fairly frequently there sharing news and things we find cool and begging, I mean asking, for your questions and answers to be used in upcoming episodes. Yeah, asking. That's the ticket. We love hearing from you all, whether you have praise, constructive criticism, or just want to share something cool and gaming-related yourselves. Also, wherever you find FC3 on social media, 
we're usually not too far behind, so if you reach out to them with something for us, they'll get it to us shortly. Legally speaking, all music, sound effects, voice clips, and so on are the properties of their respective owners. We make no claim to them and have no intention of profiting off of them. Please don't sue us. We have nothing you'd want. And now, today in video game history... Dun-dun-dun! Kind of, uh... Kind of slim pickings. How bad? June 10th. Ooh. But I did come up with something kind of neat. What's that? If nothing else, this will appeal to our dear friend John Perengal. In 1995 was the worldwide release of the Macintosh game Daleks. Yeah, that would definitely appeal to John. So this one's for you, John. I know nothing else about this game, but it's Daleks, so hopefully it's fun. Yeah, let me see if I can pull it up. Daleks! While you're pulling it up, I will mention that we are still planning on being at Flower City Comic Con on September 25th and 26th at the Total Sports Experience in Gates. Free parking, it's on a bus route, and we promise as safe and as compliant with CDC and New York State regulations as at a time as possible and as fun a time as possible. So if you're feeling up to coming to see us and you're in the Rochester area that weekend, we'd love to see you. Okay, so is it Daleks or is it Game of Daleks or City of Daleks? It's plain old Daleks. Okay, so the Daleks game works like mine, mine, uh, Minesweeper. Oh, <laughs> Oh, you have to destroy all the Daleks within one square of you and turn them into piles of junk. You can teleport, you can put up shields, and you can throw bombs. It's like Minesweeper. That's a pretty complex take on Minesweeper. You know what it reminds me of? It reminds me of um, uh, Microsoft's uh, Treasure Hunt game, which is like Minesweeper, but with weapons. Oh, okay. Running into the Daleks or piles will kill you. The Daleks will move towards you with every action you take. So, yeah, you have to move around the board and kill them all. Anything left we wanted to say today, Christy? Nope. All right. Then, (laughs) Then, until next week, we bid you adieu and game on. Bye, everyone.